Farming with Nature is proudly brought to you by SSK. Work together, win together. Welcome to episode two of the Conservation Agriculture podcast series. My name is Andrew Ardington, and I am from the Regenerative Agriculture Association of Southern Africa. My co-host is Henk de Beer. In episode two, entitled The Status of Conservation Agriculture in South Africa, Henk and I will be chatting with Dr. Johann Strauss from the Western Cape Department of Agriculture. Johann runs the Conservation Agriculture and Regenerative Agriculture trials in the Western Cape, and we will chat about how conservation agriculture has grown from its pioneer farmer origins and how it has spread to become the dominant farming practice in the Western Cape. Johan, welcome. Can you start off by telling us your story of CA? How did you come to be researching CA? Where did it all begin? Hi, Andrew. Thanks. It is an interesting road when I studied in the late 80s, early 90s. Conservation agriculture wasn't on our agenda. Canola wasn't even a proper crop then. So didn't have a background in it and went through all the motions and eventually ended up at the department. First, the college taught a little bit of agronomy and then got the job as a researcher. And then I got into the conservation trial that was currently running and started by a predecessor, Dr. Mark Hardy. Got into it and was asked to sort of take over from him because he wanted to retire and then went overseas to go and look at what CA was really about. Because at that stage, we sort of just slowly started into CA. The first six years of the long-term trial that was uh, located at Langhevent was still minimum till. And then he started full-on no-till and, and went from there. And so I happened to go and visit South America on a tour actually with Lumbo.com. Visited Argentina, met Rolf Derps, one of the initial researchers in that area, Paraguay and stuff, that did research in, in CIA. And he showed pictures of the Parana River, goes into the ocean just past Buenos Aires, and photos of the 70s where that river was brown with sediment because of erosion and how they realized that they couldn't go on like that because of the plowing, and then started to develop direct seeding. And on that visit, we visited the Iguazu waterfall as well. It's amazing to see that even in the rainy season, there's hardly any sediment left in the river. That's where the idea sort of kicked in. Just thought, okay, we could actually build this out even more, because everyone was talking no-till in the Western Cape rather than conservation agriculture. That's the main idea is that it's a holistic package of pillars that you need to implement. Just doing one of the three pillars, and you guys have probably talked about the three pillars of minimum the soil disturbance, crop rotation or biodiversity through different crops, and keeping either living roots or mulch on top of the soil as long as possible. We were focusing on no-till mainly, and a little bit of crop rotation. I remember a little tidbit of information that was shared with me when I started working on trials and stuff, that initially when the CI trial started in the Swartland, farmers said, oh, it will never work. They were doing wheat on wheat on wheat. The machines are too expensive and crop rotation will not work. Now, 27 years down the line, whole different picture. That's where it started. And from there, Reading, uh, visiting other places that's doing no-till, um, going to one or two of the international conferences on conservation agriculture has, has really cemented it in my mind that it is the way to go. And obviously, there's always tweaks and stuff that you can do to improve the basic system even further. Thanks, Johan. Today, we also have with us Henk de Beer. 
In the previous episode, Hank discussed with us his experience of living parallel with the conservation agricultural development in the Western Cape. And so Hank will also be putting Johan on the hotspot here. Hank, do you have anything you want to start off with on, on Johan? Maybe I can start with, do you think farmers at that early stage were more forced to start with conservation farming than anything other? Is my assumption correct that the most difficult area and times led to the initial start of conservation tillage ended up in conservation farming? And that didn't happen in the rest of the country as it happens in Heidelberg, for example, and that's why it started in Heidelberg. You're quite correct in saying that there was pressure Basically, environmental pressure for farmers at that early stage, more than maybe, say, economic pressures. I remember talking to Jack Eman, we basically view as the father of conservation agriculture in the Western Cape. And for him, everything started when that 81 flood in Langsburg happened, and also heavy rainfalls in that Heidelberg area where they had huge erosion problems saying that his soil was lying in the roads. He had to sort of scrape the roads and put the soil back into into the field. And he realized they couldn't go on like that. And from there it started. As we went along with the system, more and more people got convinced from those initial group that started it off. And further down the line, a little bit of economic pressure came in as well in terms of the commodity prices or and the input costs even more, that it was putting pressure on the conventional way of doing things. But definitely... There seemed to be like two parts to this. There was the introduction of conservation tillage, and then that slowly became conservation agriculture. The full package that, as you say, when implemented together, makes many of the desired improvements. When did that really start to take place? When did it become about more than no-till? It's a tricky one, Andrew. There was guys overseas that showed through research the impact of just doing one of the steps. Good example was in South America where they did from just no-till and only no-till with a clean field up to no-till where you had and all the other stuff in between. And the poorest yields was where you did no-till alone. So that's where the cover became important. And especially in a situation like ours where we are very much rain-dependent, bring dryland farmers for the most part in the Western Cape, especially in the cereals. The whole idea of keeping water and moisture in the soil as long as possible, which you're not really able to do when you're still plowing, and burning carbon. And I think the realization came that for every molecule of carbon in the soil, it can keep seven times its own weight in water. We need to harvest the water and keep it as long as possible. And as soon as you've got open soil, that water goes through the, out through the soil instead of going through the plant and translating to improved yield. And then the rotation with all the pressures of disease and herbicide resistance that was sort of came about because we were only doing a specific crop the whole time, especially in the Swartland. It was a little bit better for the Southern Cape where they had lucerne and barley was part of the package there where it wasn't the case in the Swartland. And then the crops came in as, granola came in as a break crop, or is the term usually used by the Australians, to break the cycle of cereals disease cycle, managing weeds that were a problem in the cereal that you can't spray out in the cereal. So that idea of, of crop rotation and the availability of new crops that could bring money into the farm as well came in more and more prevalent. And that helped growing the idea of the whole holistic package. So plowing, <laughs> it runs deep in our blood. It transcends cultures, it transcends geography, it transcends all sorts of things. 
began many years ago. And, you know, even today, if someone living in a town, they decide they're going to turn a corner of their garden into a vegetable garden, the first thing they're going to do is turn the whole thing over with a fork because that's what you do. That's what we've been taught for 12,000 years. It's quite a lot to undo that deep-seated cultural practice. That is very, very true. The plow was basically a double-edged sword. Initially, it might have been necessary to have the plow to actually open the acres that we can do farming on. At that stage, when it started, nobody realized the impact it actually had on the soil organic matter where nutrients come from and recycling of nutrients and burning the carbon by plowing, which meant that you store less water and erosion became a problem. I mean, we all saw, and everyone should actually know, the effect of the dust bowl happening in America. Sometimes I get the same idea for some areas in the free state as well. Yes, it's a difficult transition to make. Once you've made the transition from the old way of doing stuff, going towards more conservation-prone approaches like conservation agriculture, you have to realize that it's a long-term project. Most of the success you see isn't overnight. If you're going to measure your improvement in a single year, sorry to say, then you're going to get out of the system. But Johan, for you as a researcher or advisor, it must be difficult to tell a farmer, listen, what your father did and your grandfather did is wrong. You must change. And I told uh, Andrew the story of Jack that lied in his bed and listening to the farmers plowing and how guilty he felt and how uncertain he felt. Is he doing the right thing? Is he just lazy? The risk he took. And he went against the grain and everybody waited for him to fail. Ink, that's true. Sometimes I wonder if there isn't a magic pill I can get and just drink this one, like the red pill or the blue pill. It is difficult, and I think that's where we have an advantage, having the research and the long-term trials that we have in the Western Cape. We can actually show farmers and take them by the hand and say, listen, yeah, we're doing it. And we're doing it in a larger scale, not basically whole farm, but the plots of farm size. We use farm size equipment. And that's the practical way you can convince someone. And then getting people to actually talk to each other. I think that is where one of the biggest positives are in terms of growing conservation agriculture, in, in not only in the Western Cape, but in the whole country. It's actually farmers meeting farmers, talking, trying it, realizing that you will make mistakes guys that has been doing it for much longer than we have, these periods of time you go through, your first five years they call the honeymoon phase, where you're learning everything and figuring out what's best and what works and doesn't work, and then you start adapting, and then the system starts equalizing. Unfortunately, in our conditions, it takes you 15 to 20 years to really settle into the system where it actually now you're feeling all the benefits. Don't get me wrong, you, you see benefits from the start. Everything just working. For us, in, in terms of the trials, 20 years down the line. But I can imagine Jack lying in bed. And I know there was stories told that some of his neighbours came, the bucky load, coming to laugh at him, keeping his stubble on top of the soil, and saying, well, we're going to buy your farm. And apparently Jack just smiled and said, no, I'm going to buy your farms. And, and I think it happened that way around. Peter Gelner's Spitfits. Spitfits, He yeah. said, his father said, you can your Stop it, you can your And he, he continued to yeah. his credit. Do you think you have enough support to advocate and to spread the message or do you need support from different institutions than only the government at this stage? A really tough question. We don't do easy questions. Yeah. <laughs> Let me say it like this. At least from the Western Cape Department of Agriculture side, they've seen the value. Conservation agriculture has actually been written into the Western Cape Smart Agri Plan as a mitigation method for climate change. 
So from that side, we definitely get good support paying our salaries. And the challenge is always with budgets growing smaller and smaller for the provinces is that there isn't really a lot of money around to do a lot of research. So we are very reliant on industry supporting our trials, funding the running costs of trials. And in terms of that, more support will always be welcome. As we develop even a better CA system into an even more regenerative idea, with less and less input, still maintaining your yields and making sure that we combat climate change, we will need other entities to come in and become involved, help change farmers' minds even more, and giving us alternatives to the normal inputs that we're so used to. Did you ever find a situation where a financial institution told a farmer, listen, you have to change, otherwise we no. can't finance you? No. I must say, in SSK case, we did that with certain farmers. We said, listen, if you want to continue, if you want to be sustainable, if you want us to finance your next crop, you'll have to change. So tell us a bit about how those conversations went on. If you can't get your finance from anybody else, then the pressure is on. That left you only one option. And I think it happened in that way in many cases. And it worked. This is the first time I've actually heard someone saying that. I remember just a few years ago, we two or three just before COVID, basically. I had a financial institution, or a, I don't know if she was with the banking institution at that stage, or she was already working for the Wildlife Fund. But they were sort of, idea was to engage with the banking system and say, listen, isn't there a way that you could lower the interest rate for a farmer that is doing this type of thing? But I haven't heard anything that happened from that onward. In terms of that, with the system, what I see in, in, the, in the research as well, and speaking to some of the other farmers around that has implemented the complete package, is that the risk is becoming lower and lower in terms of climate variability. Just a quick result from the trial, maybe, just in terms of the Swatland trial. Obviously, it's not SSK, but four droughts, 2003-04, which was a little bit better, and then 2015, 2017, and again last year where we had the fourth driest year in the Swatland since 1968. In 2003, we harvested on the whole trial, where we test eight different crop rotation systems, 500 kilograms of wheat on average. 2004 was a little bit better. And then in 2015, 2.1 tons on average, 2.4, and last year, 2.5. And the best is then 2022, 2017, 2015, we had lower rainfall than in 2003. Hank spoke to you about the challenges around assistance and what we need to do, and you spoke primarily about research. But in terms of the next phase of actually getting that research to the farmers, what do we need to be doing there? That would be awesome if we had a system where we have guys in the field actually spreading the message, working closely with farmers in changing. Even if they only start with a small on-farm experiment, would be nice. I try and and do it, but yeah, your time is so limited. Unfortunately, the old way where we had extension officers going out to farm, walking the path with the farmer, we don't really have that anymore in the old sense. There's a different focus in terms of that. That's sorely missing. And there's a lot of pressure on some of our researchers to actually do a lot of their own extension. And we do. We do a lot. We talk a lot. But there could be more. I really think there should be a sometimes an independent group. The message isn't paid for by what they're selling. That would be ideal, an ideal world. That's not always an ideal world. But yeah, sometimes I wish that could be in place. 
to actually help spread the message even quicker. Shouldn't the agribusinesses and the banks put their own people in place to support the department and to say, listen, if you want finance, if you want to be sustainable in farming, you have to make a change. I wholeheartedly I agree. We need to, to train the trainers and money talks. <laughs> that unfortunately makes the world go round. And I think we don't need to stop at agribusiness. We need to go beyond that to the companies that are buying from agribusiness and the retailers. The whole food chain needs to get involved in this thing because it's all of our food. And even a step further, the carbon credit question. My experience now with carbon credits and helping a few guys with intern our sequestrations and stuff like that. Guys like Jack or Jacobus, your son that's farming now, none of them will benefit from carbon credits. Well, all this work they've done for 40 years now, their baseline is so high now, the improvement that they've done, that they're not going to benefit. So if they want to benefit from a carbon credit, they actually have to go back and plough their soil and take it 10 years back or 20 years back to start getting... But, sometimes. But maybe, can they say the end product that they produce, either wheat or barley or canola, are produced more environmentally friendly and that needs to add a premium to their end product? Shouldn't that be that, in an ideal world? Yes. We've done some research now through a student in America that looked at the economics of CA versus conventional and the saving... Well, not the saving, but the economic impact on the environment. The research clearly showed the benefit of doing something in conservation and the amount of diesel you're saving, the impact down the line, spraying less or giving less fertilizer. There's a knock-on effect in terms of your carbon footprint that we forget to think about. You know, many of the people listening will not really understand about what the changes are taking place and that, but let's just quantify in numbers... Roughly off the top of your head, I'm not putting you like exactly what the situation is, where Jack Human's farm would have been when he started and where he's grown his carbon to now, so that people can understand something of this subject. A lot of the fields in, in the Western Cape, cereal producing areas, were less than half a percent of carbon. And I know that some of Jack's fields, Jacobus's work, is taking it up to three, and I think there's one or two camps that's even at nearly four percent. So they, it makes a huge difference. Langhevens itself, our, our trials has gone from half a percent to, to between 1.5 and 1.7 in some years. And it, it changes from year to year a little bit, depending on the amount of biomass you can put back into the soil that's available for the bugs to take back and convert. Some of the camps go up to over 2%. Yeah, and just to put that in context, you know, the Western Cape, these areas that do not have deep, rich soils, and an undisturbed area is not going to have a carbon level of above three anyway. Some of the famous goes up 2%. There's certain types of areas will have 3%, maybe a little bit more. But yeah, we can come very near to what was there previously. Yeah, so it's a material difference. If you think of in terms of the human's farm, it's back to its 80% increase in soil carbon. It really is a, a meaningful change in the environmental system of that farm because carbon in the soil does many things that Johan said earlier, there's the uh, holding water capacity, but it's also really the currency of the soil that everything pays everything else with underground. Yeah, we can get a bit carried away here. So the average visitor is not going to know much about cation exchange well, capacity, just, uh, but... Uh, there's more food for the plant to take up. She did a table and all that part in this interview. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we do need to remember that... We're all fascinated by this subject and deeply involved in it, and we need to speak to a wider audience about this. 
Just on the subject of premium, this is a major contention. We'd all like to say, okay, well, it'd be a lot easier for people like Johan to convince people to change if we could give them a premium. But the research around the world shows that has a limited impact. It, it creates an impact and then that runs out very quickly because there are very few people who can afford to pay for premium products. And so we need to think of a more systemic solution that's changing the average rather than changing the 1%. But there are a lot of challenges there that we need to think about. Getting back to your work, Johan, you mentioned your trials briefly. The Langevens trial, is that one of the longest CA trials in the world? It's one of the oldest, yeah. Obviously, the oldest one is at Rotherhamstead in Britain, which is 185 years old this year. Our trial has started in 96. I know there is another one that was started earlier by Professor Anna Achenbach, which is about 40 years old, but it's not based on CA principles. And then I know the University of Pretoria also has a long-term trial. Some of the things that they do in the trial has changed so much over the years that you can't really call it a long-term trial in the way that we're doing the same systems over and over to see what happens over time. And can you just tell us a bit more about your trials, the two research farms and then you do some on-farm trials? At this stage, we do have the two research farms at the Swatland and Teigeruk in the Southern Cape, and then on-farm with Gideon Mel, a local farm in the Oakfield area. So in the West Coast Sand, we have a trial going, and then also at Riversdale, uh, where we have an on-trial farm with uh, Jan-Hendrik Jubaer. That has been going for at least 20 years now. There's a farmer's day associated with the trial. We've also started one at Oakfield when the trial started five years ago. Unfortunately, we had two years of COVID where we didn't get together as we would like, but this year everything is really full on again. So taking a little step back from the Overberg and this region, the wheat region, and looking at the whole of South Africa, there is a significant difference between the adoption rate of conservation agriculture between the wheat region and, for instance, the maize region. What insights do you have into that, that their adoption rate is so low? Well, it's a difficult one. I don't really get to speak to a lot of them. One of the things that you'll always find when you start talking about CA is that a guy will tell you, but I have a special soil. Natal will never work here. I would like to know what makes your soil so special. If what we're doing, what we've seen in similar areas to us where you have poor soils, shallow soils, and it's working there, and we've seen it works in South America and Brazil, brilliant examples there, then why shouldn't it work in IFL? Yes, you have to adapt CA, and you have to experiment and try and until you find the rotation that works in your area. It sometimes just needs a little bit of time and effort. It's difficult to speak to what happens in the north, and there's other guys that knows more the intricacies of why adoption is not that great. But even in the Western Cape, we did a quick survey about two years ago. Roughly, I would say full adoption, all the base principles, about 51% in the Western Cape, so there's still room for improvement. Most of the guys will have a notal machine. Most do rotation. There's very little guys still doing monocropping of wheat. Stubble retention, there's too much burning still going on of the residue. There is reasons why the guys do it. Sometimes reasons might not be that obvious or really proven in terms of being highly successful in what they want to do. But you can overcome those issues with a little bit of effort and insights. But yeah, there's obviously definitely room for improvement. And Kwasuru-Natalis, if you look at the figures, there's also a good adoption rate there, but it's really focused around the Winterton Bergville area. Not necessarily in other. I know the sugarcane has these large efforts in trying to change how they do things. 
luckily there's more and more research going on, more and more of the universities and colleges are starting to incorporate the idea of conservation agriculture into their curriculums. That is really important. But we also sort of teach that in our schools. Even if it's just a normal school that's doing biology, getting that concept into kids' minds, because they're the next generation, they will have to make the huge differences now. Some of us are way too old to do this. Yeah, we definitely got to introduce soil as a subject at school. We and all the other animals on the planet can't live without it, so it's something we need to understand better as a species. So in terms of my experience of moving around the country, I see a very positive effect with study clubs. You've been involved here with some regional study clubs and you have your Western Cape CA Association. Can you tell us a little bit about those things? Study groups within the farming community is really valuable. Getting guys to open up about what they're doing, learning from each other, I think that's critical. I would love to be more involved with the study groups. We don't always get an invite to join, but learning from them and seeing how we can adapt our research as well to help them would be awesome. But there's a different benefit in terms of getting involved with a study group. And then with our association, it has grown. We're hopefully doing our 11th one this year. And it's amazing the feedback we get from farmers in terms of the people that we're bringing out. We're not always highly successful with, say, an international speaker, but I think at this stage there was only one that was some complaints about. But for the most part, all those guys are bringing added value. Just changing a guy's mind about thinking about certain stuff, thinking about how you think about cover crops, for instance changes that can be made. I remember our second conference, we brought out an American guy called Barry Fisher. He was really involved in the USDA's program about cover crops and soil health and and came from Iowa. And we got on farm with the farmers in the Swartland, which is on a medic wheat system. And they actually have adapted their system to a two-year medic, one-year wheat system. And they were talking to Barry and saying that Listen, I can't understand it. Why is our second-year medics not as good as our first-year medic? For our listeners, medics is a pasture crop. So you can graze it with sheep and cattle. It also has the added benefit of binding nitrogen into the soil, which actually lowers your need for nitrogen out of the bag. But in any case, so they were asking the question, why is the second-year production not as good as the first-year? So Barry asked them, all right, tell me, which is the crop that comes before your medics? Now it's wheat, which is high in carbon, and carbon feeds the bugs. The bugs is fed that first year, but the second year you don't have a lot of carbon left. And now they start charming the second year's medic. So he advised them, just sow something into the first year medic. And they were a bit skeptical about it, but they started experimenting. And now they're on a system where they actually, first year medics get sown with a small or cheap cover crop, sown into the medics that first year. All the volunteer wheat that comes up from last year's seed that fell into the soil comes up, weeds come up, everything gets grazed throughout the season multiple times. And then the second year, they keep the medic clean. And amazingly, the third year when they plant wheat, they're giving five kilograms of nitrogen in terms of a chicken manure pellet and then close the gate. Hardly spray any weeds within the wheat. So it changes just by one comment. And I remember, it will always stay with me, we were also in the swap plant. And we were on farm and we were listening to Rolf Daps at that stage. And there was a farmer complaining about this. That's a problem. And this is a problem. And that's a problem. And Rolf speaks seven languages and he's a real gentleman. The guy asked him finally, what do you think is the problem? And Rolf keeps quiet for a while and says, I think it's a management problem. Which was true. 
The adoption of the system in different areas is interesting topic and we can talk about that, I suppose, for a long time. The one golden thread I remember from the legacy of Jack was that he was always open to share his knowledge and tell everybody what's he doing and why is he doing it, which is a good thing and add to your study group questions. Another difficult question, maybe, just your comments on that. Do you think it's possible, if I can use the word possible, and to start to go a little bit back into the history, Riversdale, Albertina area is a difficult area. They had a history of crop failures with that huge impact on farmers in those areas. Lately, they're starting to pick up again. How big a role do conservation, farming, agriculture play in what's happening there? And do you think it's think it is possible to conceive that conservation agriculture can increase the grain production area in South Africa? My personal view is that the system has played a huge role. Moving away from the old way of doing it, burning carbon through the tillage effort has made a difference in bringing that stability. Looking at all the trials and the data that we're generating from that shows that there's more and more stability over time being more resilient in terms of handling the climate. Well, you're more sure that you're actually going to harvest something where, I mean, I had farmers telling me straight out, if they were still farming in the old way, in this dry years, they wouldn't have made a harvest. Can I interrupt? They yes. would, mostly would have said they wouldn't have planted in the yes. first case because they haven't had, wouldn't have had enough uh, moisture in the soil, so they wouldn't have even started. No, definitely. Uh, and going forward... We have to keep in mind that with the climate change, if we're not going to turn it around or try and mitigate it as much as we can, certain areas are going to become drier and other areas are going to become wetter. I've heard about a guy that is in the Free State doing CA and the only one in the area. It just escapes me now precisely where. But I've heard someone else telling me that when it's too wet, he's planting where his neighbours can't get into the fields. When it's too dry, he's planting, his neighbours can't get into the fields. And still, the neighbour don't want to change. I'm glad, in a sense, to be in the Western Cape where the adoption has grown so much. And I think the whole idea of that farmer talking to farmer have played a huge role in this and being open to change. That's critical. Going forward, if guys see other guys doing well and farming in the same area, it has to start tickling them and, and change. Why aren't I I'm not doing the same thing? I think all of us had the privilege of standing with farmer A's land on the one side and farmer bees on the other side and see the huge difference because of the different practices but it's too sensitive to show that photo or that slide in any discussion or any briefing or whatever you want to call it but it's so clear for everybody to see. We once visited the trial site in the north in the free state I'm not going to tell you where but it rained the previous night 26 millimeters of rain. And then we went into the trial, and the trial was alternately conventional, no talk, conventional, no talk, maze. And I could feel the difference walking. I knew immediately where I was walking. In the tillage area, you just sank away. And they had the same amount of rain, and both profiles were wet, but on the no-till side, you can actually walk on top. But it's unfortunately sometimes that practical, in-your-face things that you need to show a farmer to say, listen, I think it's time. We always need to be careful when we step on these toes as we go along here. We don't want to be accused of sitting on an ivory tower and criticizing people. And so, But that's not really what we're trying to do here. We're just talking about the differences and how we need to make this change happen because of the obvious benefits that both of you have experienced in your lifetimes through this process. Moving back to the Overberg, 
What are practices that you would like to see more of being adopted by farmers across the Overberg at the moment? We are very limited in terms of our biodiversity in our cropping fields. Unfortunately, with the crops that we have, it has an economic value. It's really limited to four, five, maybe six different ones. So the only way of bringing more diversity into it is the idea of cover crops. Having a multi-species cover crop, getting different roots into the system. But in our case, it's not as easy. Unfortunately, we're sitting with a more Mediterranean-type climate. The challenge in the SSK or the Southern Cape area is slightly less than what you will find in the Swatland, but because there is a measure of summer rainfall where you could practically have a cover crop. I know that some will differ from me and say, but you need to conserve all the water you can during summer, so killing off all the weeds, everything. Some of my data has shown that December, January, February, rainfall there contributes 0.01% to my yield. March, April, May is more important. So that tells me you can actually grow a cover crop terminated by the end of February and still conserve enough moisture while building the soil. If I'm correct, you're meaning a cover crop in terms of a one-year cash crop, maize or sunflower? No, a cover crop for the sake of having different roots. Or you, the added benefit, you could actually graze it with animals yeah. and getting an extra grazing during the summer. A lot of areas, it is very difficult where you don't have a lot of summer rain. So in the pure sense of a cover crop, as you see in America where it happens in between two cash crops, not necessarily a viable option for us. But you can bring in a cover crop in winter. I know there's a lot of sort of resistance to it because I'm offering up a possible cash crop for a cover crop, which I understand. But you can have the benefit of dual benefit where you have, you're putting down roots into the soil that feeds all the animals or the bugs in the soil, which we want and also feeding animals on top of it and maintaining that life cycle going. And that's why we try and do that through our research as well, showing the economics of that. But you only bought that big expensive planter and tractor and combine last year for your cash crops and now you're forced to use it less than you want to. So economics of scale, you know, no, works against you. That's the issue, isn't True. It will always be an issue, but I, I think again it is where we're at. I think the focus has become so highly on who's producing the most in a whole context that we forget that producing the most wheat or the most maize is not necessarily the guy that's most sustainable. It will require a mind shift. That's definitely something that I want to see more. And all of our research indicates that the systems where animals are part of the system, either be medics or be lucerne, what the case may be, it's more stable over time than a pure cash cropping system. And I understand that the choice a farmer has to make. Some of them don't like animals and don't want to farm with animals. And I think there's another mind shift that needs to, be, to come in where I say, well, I have a cover crop to help improve my cash cropping system in terms of the time. And why not have your neighbor come and graze that, who is carrying animals? And you also get the benefit of recycling that material through urine and dung. Yeah, you raise a number of interesting things there, one being sort of philosophical outlook that really comes in in regenerative thinking around the whole concept of yield and profit. And I think in many ways, the agriculture across the world has been tricked into chasing yield rather than chasing profits. I don't know too many factories in Cape Town that try to produce as much of they can as whatever they're producing. They try to produce the amount that makes it the most profitable. And that's the sort of thinking we need to perhaps bring into the future of agriculture. 
It's again an issue of survival and your finance uh, and seeing the bigger picture, the longer picture, the sustainability of what are you busy with. Can I maybe give you an example? Okay, this is a swart lot example. Two systems where we replaced lupins in the system with a cover crop. Because lupins, long-term average, a ton. So 9 out of 10 years, you actually it has a negative impact on your gross margin of your system or your farm system. Exchange that, and two years in a row, those two systems, even though they had a cover crop in it, which cost money for the, so the seed, but we plant our cover crops with no inputs. It's only planting with a little bit of nitrogen to get it out of the soil, and then we leave it. Both of those systems made between six and 800 rand a hectare more than a monoculture wheat system. It made less than, than a system where you had three years of wheat and, and one year of canola, which has got a lot of its own problems, but still. I could actually implement it without having animals on it, where I got maybe meat and wool that I can allocate to that, and it still made more money than a monoculture. We got you in our previous conversation with Hank, the animals, and uh, the integration of animals back into cropping, and how to do that in a way that's that's most beneficial, but have to be the subject of another whole podcast, because <laughs> that's a long conversation with lots of differing points of view. So going forward now, Johan, we've heard mostly from Henk and a little bit from you now how the resilience of the Overberg has been improved through this wide adoption of CA, especially in the dry years, and we've had good productions in those dry years with retained moisture. What do you see as the things, the changes that farmers need to be thinking about? What are the jack humans of 2023 having to think about to make sure that we continue this resilient production for the next 25 years. Andrew, I think the mind shift that needs to be made by the young guys is how do I improve even more? The whole idea of, I say maybe, maybe inherit the farm in a certain state. My dad has improved it over 20, 30, 40 years time. How do I take it from this 40 years, first 40 years, and for the next 30 years, improve it even more so when my children come to the farm, they receive it in a better state than I received it in. And unfortunately, we have to look at our inputs. The global carbon footprint of the inputs we're putting in is having a huge impact and pressure on, in terms of how we farm. So that more biological approach will become more and more prevalent. Society as a whole is starting to put pressure on farmers, the way they're producing stuff. Unfortunately, we have to take that into account and move forward with the times. What a wonderful discussion. Thank you, Johan, for your time and the story of your journey with conservation agriculture. That brings us to the end of episode two. In episode three, we'll be exploring cover crops with Rens Smith. Farming with Nature is proudly brought to you by SSK and Food Form Zanzi. If you are looking for a sustainable farming partner, then look no further than SSK. Visit ssk.co.za for more information.